0: You may be seated. Well, welcome to Pleasant City Church this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Summer in the Psalms. And uh, this morning, I really just want to share a psalm that has meant a lot to me over this last year. And to do that, I need to tell you a little backstory. Uh, I want to tell you about the time I met my friend Adam. Uh, it's not Adam Montgomery up here, he's a, he's a friend too. And I met you this year too, so that was cool. Um, but no, I met a friend named Adam. And actually, his name's not Adam. I've changed his name uh, to kind of respect his privacy, but I remember the first time I met Adam, we're calling him Adam today, it was right here at church, I had just finished the welcome on a Sunday morning, and I was walking off stage and I noticed that there was someone sitting like right here on the second row, right on the same row that I normally sit on. And I, I, I knew I didn't, I didn't recognize him. I'd never seen him before. Um, he was new to our church, new for the first time. And um, we were right in the middle of the worship time, and, and I didn't want to distract him or disturb him. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll meet him after. So right after our gathering, I, I introduced myself to Adam, and Adam introduced himself to me. And, and Adam said, you know, I'd love to catch up with you sometime and, and maybe go have coffee with you sometime. I didn't think anything of it. And I thought, yeah, let's do that. And so that week, we decided to go for coffee at Lily Bean and sitting down with Adam. I, I learned really quickly that Adam did not believe anything the way I believe. You see, Adam believed a different belief. He believed something that I think is a major threat to the church here in America, a major threat to the church and really even a threat to his own soul. You see, Adam, for the last year, I've been meeting with Adam about every two or three weeks, and we've been having dialogue and conversation about what it looks like, what it looks like to be an atheist and what it looks like to be a believer in Christ. You see, one of the greatest threats facing the church is what National Geographic calls the world's newest major religion. No religion. Recently in a survey of Christian leaders from around the world, 71%, these are pastors, 71% of pastors called atheism or cited the atheism or secularism as the biggest threat to the church. This worldview comprises 1.6 billion people and is increasingly permeating our society. So, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Psalms chapter 14. Psalms 14. You know, I love this because the, this is not, although National Geographic says this is a new world religion, this is nothing new under the sun. The Bible addresses this way back, even in the time of David. David writes this psalm, Psalm 14. He writes this psalm, and basically, it's a psalm that gives us a clear picture of the foolish belief of atheism. So look with me in verse 1 of Psalm 14, chapter 1, or Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. So this morning, I want to take just a little time, and maybe you already know what this is all about. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, okay, you're not going to probably tell me anything new this morning. That's fine. Just sit and review. But maybe, maybe you don't really know what this looks like, what it looks like, this threat that we're facing in our world and in our church. This morning, I want to just take a little time and just kind of talk about what it looks like for the unbelieving heart, the unbelieving atheist. There's some myths that I want to kind of debunk as we're talking about this, and maybe you kind of have an idea of what an atheist looks like, what an atheist believes, but there's a couple of things I want to say up front, two myths that we can just go ahead and debunk. The first one is the atheists believe in nothing. Atheists uh, believe in nothing. That is a myth. That is not true. In fact, atheists actually will tell you, uh, it's interesting, but they will actually say that about themselves. I remember talking to Adam, and and he was just saying, you know, I don't believe in, I believe in nothing. I I don't believe in anything. That's actually not true, because everyone believes in something. The atheism is actually a belief system. It's a belief in not God. It's a belief that there is no God. So, atheists believe in nothing. That's a big myth. The second myth that you see is that atheists have no morals, You know, we typically get this picture in our head when we think of someone who's atheistic. And for a lot of us, the picture in our head is like this far-left communist, right? It's like we're thinking, okay, this guy must be a communist. This guy must be like way, way off base. And, And the fact of the matter is, although communism's primary teaching is atheism, it doesn't necessarily mean that every atheist you ever come across is some left communist, in fact, many atheists, most atheists, have some sort of moral code. Now, we're going we're to talk about how that moral code is flawed, and even Psalm 14.1 tells us about how that moral code is flawed, but I want you to get this picture in your head that there are many atheists, many unbelievers that are faithful to their spouse. There are many unbelievers, many atheists that love their children and, and treat them well. There are many atheists and unbelievers that pay their taxes and do what our society deems as moral and good and right things. And this is a myth because so many times I think one of the things that repels believers, repels Christians, is that we automatically stereotype and categorize every atheist into this little box, and we think, well, there's no use. These are myths that we have to stop believing. Atheists have no morals. They, they do. They have a moral code that they follow. The makeup of this belief is two parts. So the first part, we all know, Atheist is the belief, atheism is the belief that God does not exist. It's pretty clear cut. This is where you find a lot of self-proclaimed atheist, but there's another section of that. It's also this idea of agnosticism. I know that's a big word, but it's the belief that it is impossible to know if God exists. So you have people that clearly say there is no God, and then you have people over here that say there's really no way to prove or disprove, or there's really no reason for me to think that there is a God. There may be a God, there may not be a God, but here's the thing about agnosticism practically they function the exact same way. They function as if there is no God. And this is the makeup of an atheist. It's the makeup of someone who is an unbeliever in God. What's the messages of this belief? The messages of this, and keep in mind, these are broad strokes. I'm not saying every every atheist believes exactly this, but listen to some of the messages that they tend to believe. First one is everything is simply matter. There is no supernatural. Everything is matter. Everything is molecules. There is no soul. These feelings of love, these feelings of hate, these, these different feelings that we feel, they're just, they're just DNA. In fact, Richard Dawkins, uh, a pronounced a, a renowned atheist, says that, uh, that all we are doing is dancing to our DNA. That we are just walking out these biological functions in our life. That there is no supernatural. Everything is just natural order. The natural order of the world. It's just all matter. That nature is all there is. And therefore, knowledge is gained only by scientific study into the natural world. Now, again, I'm not, I don't want to crash on science. Science has taught us many, many great things. But for the atheists, that is their only source of knowledge. The only source of knowledge is what they can see under a microscope. It, the only source of knowledge is what they can experience with their five senses, what they can smell, what they can see, what they can taste, what they can touch. This is the way the atheist views The world, that knowledge is only gained by scientific study. And therefore, scientific, not supernatural authority, is superior authority. That for the atheist, there is no place for a biblical authority there's no place for any kind of spiritual or supernatural authority in the world that everything boils down to what I can see what I can feel what I can touch what I can smell this is where the atheist gets his authority therefore morals for the atheist morals are developed over time through progress in society That the moral code for an atheist is not a biblical code or an outside supernatural person speaking into what that looks like. Instead, their moral code is the progress that's made throughout society. So what may have been perceived as right or wrong in one time may change over time and across cultures clear example of this that we see right now in our day and age is the idea of marriage and sexuality. It's a clear example of what we see. Our culture has come to believe that premarital, extramarital, sexual encounters, cohabitation, homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, they are right, not wrong. In fact, to say those things are wrong now makes you wrong. So think about this, what was commonly held as sexual morality 100 years ago is now different 100 years now. I would dare say that what was commonly held as sexual morality even 10 years ago has now changed. The atheist view: the unbeliever believes this. Morals evolve with society, and what society deems appropriate is the authority and moral that is upheld. All of this gives us a picture of the message of atheism and why they believe what they believe. So this morning, as we as we kind of give you this little review, I want to want just say a couple things about. Who is included in this belief system? There are two categories, two sets of members that are included in this group. The first one is those who say God does not exist. Those who say God does not exist. My friend Adam, that's what he believes. It's a person that says in their heart and in their mind and maybe even verbally, God doesn't exist. And here's what I know to be true. I know there's several people in this room. Here's here's what I know to be true. And I never really thought about it until I met Adam. But there are people in this room right now that you may very well fall into that category of membership. Maybe you're a church person. Maybe you're here because your parents asked you to come here. Maybe this is a social thing for you, and maybe you enjoy some of the things we do here. But maybe for you, you have kind of prescribe to this belief system that you really in your heart of hearts you really truly believe there is no god. Maybe you were raised in church your entire life, maybe you maybe you had believing parents and somewhere along the way you're just at a state where that's just not true for you. That's not something that you actually believe. And maybe no one in this room knows that I definitely didn't know it about my friend Adam. But maybe you're here today, and that's where you find yourself. Man, I'm praying that God would speak to your heart this morning, that God would just do something in your heart that only he can do. There's another group here. Those, the first group is those who say God does not exist, and then there's those who live as though God does not exist. And here's the difference. It's more than just whether you say God does or doesn't exist. How you live your life reflects what you truly believe inside. Remember what it says there in verse 14, chapter 14 verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God, and then look at what follows. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Belief in our heart leads to action outward. And this is where the number skyrockets from 1.6 billion people to who knows what. That there could be people in this room right now that you say with your mouth, you believe in God. You may even say, yeah, I believe all that. But if you are honest with yourself, the hour you spend here each week looks totally different the rest of your week. Because you are living out an existence that, that makes everyone would, everyone would think and you would think of yourself that maybe there is no God. That maybe you don't say there's no God, but you are living an existence as if there is no God. Billy Graham once said on national television, this just blows my mind when I hear this statistic. Billy Graham said on national television that 85% of church attenders are actually in this category. Practicing atheists. They may never say or profess atheism, but they are living their life as if they were atheists. Think about this for just a minute. Out of maybe 250 people in the room right now, that's probably a modest number, it's probably more than that, but out of 250 people in this room right now, what that looks like for us in this room is that 40 of us are actual followers of Jesus. The rest, the rest are practicing atheists, practicing unbelievers because they've lived their life for themselves and they live their life really as if there is no God. And man, I I, want to challenge you today as we're talking, I know this is kind of a serious message, but I want to challenge you today as we're talking. Is that you? Is your week, does your week look totally different than the one hour you spend here a week? The two hours you spend here a week. Does your week look totally different than that? Are your decisions made as if you believe there is no God? Do you even think about God outside of this one hour a week? This to me is where it hits for us. You see, this is a far-reaching problem. And, and David knew this. This is a bigger problem than just one little category category of 1.6 billion people. David says this in Psalm, at the end of verse 1, he says, There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You know, as I was studying this passage, uh, an illustration just kind of hit me as I was looking at what this passage looks like. Especially the word corrupt there where he says, they have become corrupt. A uh, little personal information. I love milk. Okay, I love milk. How many of you guys? You just love milk. Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. So there's half of you in here. And and, and those of you that like milk, most of you all have a certain preference on the scale of milk. Like those of you that are whole milk people, you kind of turn your nose up to the skim milk people, right? I, I get that. Um, I'm gonna tell you. I'll confess it. Some of you are gonna lose credit or lose. Uh, uh, respect for me. I am a skim milk kind of guy. And, and here's the thing. I have kind of a routine with this. Like, this is the thing I do just about every night. I drink a glass of skim milk every single night because I, have to, I, I, just, I enjoy having the milk with chocolate. In fact, I don't understand how anyone can eat a piece of chocolate or anything chocolatey and not get milk, right? I just don't get that. But here's the thing about how I deal with my milk. If I go to the fridge and I open the fridge, I always look at the date on the milk. And here's the truth for some of you, and I want you to be honest. It's confession time. How many of you, the minute you see the date, if it's the day of or past the date, you just automatically throw it out? Is there anybody? Okay, let's let's just be honest. Some of you are thinking about that, and you're thinking, that is so wasteful. I know. I, I get it. But here's the reason why I do it. I can't stand to think about accidentally drinking a cup of spoiled and sour milk. Not just that, I can't stand to even smell the milk. You know, like, I can't stand the smell of that. I can't stand the smell or the taste of sour, nasty milk. And so to prevent that from ever happening, I just throw it out before it ever gets to that point. I know this is a weird picture, but I want you to picture this. This is actually what the word corrupt means here. It's this idea of something that is rancid, something that is spoiled to the point where it is detestable. This is what God's word tells us about who we look like or who we are to God before Christ, that we are so detestable like spoiled milk, like rancid, nasty milk. That is the way we are viewed and that is the way we are seen before Christ enters the picture. And this is what the word corrupt means. You see, disbelief and this worldview are at the center of the unbelieving heart of mankind, that the human race is guilty individually and inclusively. The human race as a whole and man as an individual have turned away from God and are spoiled. We are all born into the same problem, and according to Billy Graham, most of us stay there. And this is a fierce threat to the church, and this is a fierce threat to our very souls. Verse 4 says... Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There are three words that we can kind of see right here in this text. There are three words that really mark the life of a, of a practicing atheist, of an unbeliever. And this might not be true for every single unbeliever, but these are things that we see in our society, and these are things we see in the life of many, many unbelievers. The first word is ignorance. It's ignorance. Verse 4 says, have they no knowledge? We're certainly not talking about academic intelligence here. In fact, when I think about my friend Adam, the, man, the young man is brilliant. Very, very, very intelligent. We're not talking about that. Ignorance is not limited to the dull-witted, the illiterate, or the poorly educated. It's not that believers, excuse me, it's not that unbelievers are stupid, it's that they are foolish. It's that they are fullness. Ignorance is a willful lack of knowledge. It's a willing lack of knowledge. They have purposefully blinded themselves to the truth. It's literally like walking around with their eyes closed. I've got my friend here. He doesn't know I'm going to pick on him, but I'm going to pick on him for just a minute. My friend Kevin Baker sitting right here. Kevin, raise your hand, Kevin, so people can see you. Kevin actually makes the handouts for us every week. So the handout you have in your hand, Kevin does that for us every single week. So, Kevin, you're a part of the little illustration now, and hopefully it won't embarrass you too bad. But I want you to imagine, Kevin, that you're sitting here in the room, and all of a sudden you need to void your bladder. Okay? That's probably the nicest. Don't, don't go now. <laughs> You need to void your bladder, and that's probably the nicest way to say that. Imagine, Kevin, how silly it would be if you decided, I'm going to close my eyes to go to the bathroom. And you close your eyes, and you get up, and it looks like you got three stairs or three chairs there. You probably can at least sense that you're, that you're you know, beyond those chairs before you make the turn. But probably not far down that aisle, you're going to be veering into Bob down there, Right? You're me hitting Bob. You're gonna have a hard time figuring out exactly where the door is. Once you get through that door, you're gonna have to figure out where the turn is to go into the bathroom. I mean, the whole process is disastrous. And that's not even including you getting into the bathroom and doing what you need to do in the bathroom. That would be a disaster. The fact of the matter is, guys, this is truly what God is telling us. This is what it looks like to be an atheist. It looks like this idea of willing blindness that we refuse to see what's right in front of us. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, that have been made. He's basically saying here, hey, just look around. Like everything here proclaims there's a God. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Ignorant. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Here's our word. They became fools. They repressed the knowledge of a God. And and there's a, a clear thing to say here. Design implies designer. Design implies designer. What do I mean by that? I want us to think about it in this way. I have this watch here. Imagine I sit this watch right here in this room, and we all leave this room, and someone stumbles into this room. Let's say a a 10-year-old stumbles into this room. He wasn't in here, didn't know I set that watch there. And he comes into this room with the lights on, no one else in the room, and he walks around, and he comes up to this table, and he discovers this watch sitting here on this table. Not for one moment does that 10-year-old think this watch just came out of nothing, right? Not for one moment does this 10-year-old think, well, you know, there's, there's these electronics up here in the ceiling. Maybe some of that stuff just kind of fell from the ceiling and started dropping and fell into place and fashioned this watch that now works and keeps perfect time. Even a 10-year-old doesn't believe that, right? This is the foolishness of atheism, to look at something that is far more intricate than a watch, to look at creation, to look at even our own bodies, to look at all of this that we see around us and just automatically assume this just came into being over millions and millions and millions of years ago. This just kind of all fell into being there's no designer, there's no intelligent design that's foolishness to believe that. And this is what we see in our world, this ignorance that, that has just captivated the unbeliever. Another mark that we see here is this word we call intolerance. Intolerance. Verse 4 says again, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. This this isn't talking about cannibalism. Uh, this is talking about this idea of persecution, and this is something we see in our culture right now, and, and I'll dare say, you know, my friend Adam, I never really saw this in him, just, for, uh, just to be clear. I never really saw this in him. He was always very respectful of what I had to say, and I was respectful of what he had to say, but here's the truth. As a group of people, as a whole, we have seen this in our society, This unbeliever heart, this unbelieving spirit of intolerance that's gripped our society right now. And we are in the aftermath of every bit of that. Because the word tolerant, the word intolerant, the word tolerant, the traditional word for tolerance used to mean this. I can value someone without valuing their views and their beliefs. I can value someone without valuing their their views and beliefs. That's what tolerance means. That's what the actual word means. In In fact, tolerance necessitates disagreement. I don't tolerate you if you believe exactly what I do. I tolerate you if we believe differently, yet... I can respect and value you as a person. This is what tolerance has meant for generations and generations and generations. But there is a new kind of tolerance. There's a new cultural tolerance that we find ourselves in. And it's this tolerance that says, I cannot disagree with what's popular or politically correct. I cannot disagree with that. New tolerance New tolerance and new intolerance, the best way I can sum this up is with a picture and a phrase, and it's kind of goofy, but here's the picture right here. This right here, ladies and gentlemen, if you grew up in the late 80s, this might be a part of your childhood. Pee-wee Herman's Playhouse. I'm going to just tell you, this was a dark spot in my life. (laughs) Because this is the most ridiculously stupid show I remember watching. In fact, I think I got to a point where my parents kind of X'd it out of my life. Maybe, I can't remember exactly. But here's the thing about Pee Wee Herman. His famous phrase, the number one quoted thing that he used to always say and that everyone knows that he said was this phrase. I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? It was this phrase that he used to contradict and to argue with the people that would come on his show. And it's the assertion that an insult made by the party to whom the phrase is directed is actually true of that party and not of the person using the phrase. Stay with me. I know I'm getting deep here, especially with Pee Wee. It's a phrase used to signify that an argument has degraded to an immature level. It's used as a response to someone that's turned a friendly discussion into a personal argument. And this is one of the primary weapons of the atheist culture. It's one of the primary weapons, the accusation of being intolerant simply because we disagree. And the irony of proclaiming that actually makes the proclaimer the intolerant one. This is the attack that has been brought to our doorstep as a church. I know you are, but what am I? The intolerant calling us intolerant. The last mark that we see in the atheist worldview is this word we call indifference. Indifference. Had they no knowledge, verse 4, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. Do not call upon the Lord. The unbeliever, if we were honest, and this is the, this is the hardest part about an unbeliever. It's the hardest part about winning an unbeliever to Christ. It's the hardest part about an unbeliever's worldview. They simply do not care. Last week, Tessa was here talking about her mission in Europe there in Sweden. And I I, I know she said it here from stage. We had a chance to talk about it a little bit more that night before. And she was saying, Jonathan, that's the hardest part about talking to people about Jesus. They simply don't care about their lives. They don't care about their eternity. They don't care about these things. They simply have just put it out of their minds. indifference has been described as a paralysis of the soul. It's a premature death. It's the idea of drowning and refusing to grab hold of the life buoy that's been thrown to us. It's the idea of drowning and literally just sitting there struggling and starting to go down and someone throws the little life The life ring to us and it's right there in front of our face and we refuse to grab hold. Their passive consent to unbelief is ultimately their active consent to doom. Which leads to a frightening judgment. A frightening judgment. Look at verse 5. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Look, verse five again. Look at what it says about this unbeliever. There they are in great terror. The original Hebrew phrase here is actually they feared a fear. They feared a fear. And and I I often wonder, and and I still don't really have a a clear answer to this. I've asked many times from my friend Adam. But here's here's the thing that I struggle with 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 my friend Adam. Why does he come? Why does he come to church? He hasn't been here in in a long time. He's actually moved away. Uh, He lives in Florida now. But why does he come? Why Why did he even come? You see, I believe that the unbeliever... When they lay their head on their pillow, they fear a fear. They fear a fear, and understandably so. I mean, think about this. What does someone who believe and know God have to live for? What do they look forward to? What does the unbeliever who believes all this is matter and there's no supernatural, what is it that they look toward? They have two possible futures. The first one is this. The best case scenario for them is non-existence and oblivion. That's the best case scenario for them, that if they get exactly what they believe in, their life is just out of existence. That's that's pretty bleak. But here's something even scarier than that. What if they're wrong? I've asked Adam this question before. Adam, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong about what you believe? The worst case scenario is eternal suffering in hell. That that at the end of the day, their ignorance, their intolerance, and indifference led them to a terrible end and leads them to a terrible future. And up until this point, we're looking at this psalm, and we're hearing David speak this and sing this. This is actually a song, if if you can believe it. We're hearing David do this, and imagine he's painting this grim scene. In fact, if this was a courtroom scene, the sentence has been passed, the court is being cleared, and the accused are being led away to execution. That's kind of the, the, the path we see in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 14. But there is one more verse that David gives us, that gives a chance for a faithful deliverance. And I love this verse because when all the hope is gone out of this story, he leaves us with verse 7, and I love it. It says, All oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be got glad. Now, those of you that are Bible scholars, you know as well as I do, the immediate context of this verse is what David's saying is that he's longing for his own people, the people of Israel, to be restored. He's longing for the unbelievers in Israel to be restored. And the way that's going to happen is that, that salvation is going to come, going to come, going to happen through a Savior that will come out of Zion. And we know who that Savior is, that the whole story of God is bigger than creation. It's bigger than what he's created. It's also what he's brought in the terms of redemption, that he sent his own son to die for us in that while we were indifferent towards God, he was actively pursuing us. And he died on a cross for us, for our sin, and for our shame. And because of that, man, David has a reason to celebrate because he knows the future. He knows what's coming. He doesn't know the details of the future, but he he knows that salvation is going to come out of Zion. And the same Savior who will transform Israel nationally then can save us individually now. That God's response to the unbeliever, God's response to the unbeliever is a loving and patient delay of judgment. I want you to think about this for just a minute, guys. Maybe you're in this room and you're in one of those classifications I mentioned earlier. Maybe you say there is no God. Or maybe you live your life as if there's no God. Can I tell you what God's response to you is right now? The fact that you are breathing air right now is God's response to you saying, I am loving, I am patiently delaying judgment so that you will come to me. And wherever you are in this room right now, if that is you, if you are sitting out there and you are saying in your heart, there is no God, if you are saying in the way you live your life that there is no God, he is sitting there and he is saying, I am lovingly and patiently delaying judgment so that you can come and be with me. And man, don't delay, don't wait. If God's response is this, what should our response be? Believer in this room, what should our response be? If God's response is loving and patient delay of judgment, what about us as believers in Christ? There's some of you in here that you've followed Jesus your whole life. you followed Christ your whole life. Your life does reflect that you believe in a God and that you believe in Jesus and that you believe these things. What should our response be to an unbelieving world, an unbelieving person? You know, I've learned a lot from my friend Adam. Like this last year has been one of the most, it's one of the most insightful friendships I've had over this last year. Just talking with him every other week. And here's some things that I've, I've taken away from our time together. What should our response look like, Christian? Our response should look like this. Understanding should be greater than our opinion, In a world where we constantly want to give our opinions on social media, in a world where we constantly want to tell somebody what we think and what we believe and what we know, try to understand the perspective of the one that you are engaging. Try to hear them. Try to understand them. Create humble dialogue and cause them to honestly question their beliefs. You know, I think for a lot of believers, and it's, it's not wrong that we have this. In fact, I'm going to give us a verse in just a second that says we should do some of this. For a lot of believers, we always just want to say what we want to say. We always just want to say, say Scripture and say, and say this and say this and say this and defend this and defend that and defend and, and And that's, I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But when do we ever just listen to them? When do we try to understand where they're coming from and why they are thinking the way they're thinking? When's the last time we've asked a question of them? Rather than defend all the questions they have for us, when do we say, you know, what's caused you to believe this way? Why do you think this? Understanding is greater than opinions. Also, heart is greater than head. Heart is greater than head. This doesn't mean that we don't use our minds. It doesn't mean we don't ask God for wisdom. It means that we realize that the objections about God are not only in a person's head, but they're also in a person's heart. Remember the first verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, it's a moral problem in the heart, not a mental problem in the head. C.S. Lewis, I'll never forget reading this. I was reading Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest Christian thinkers uh, ever. Like, there's, there's a few of them out there, and he's one of them. And he is so good at articulating defenses for why we believe what we believe. And it just blew me away when I read this. He says this, no one has ever become a Christian because they got all their questions answered. There are never enough right answers to convince someone. It takes a move of God in the heart. And for a lot of us, we are so focused on engaging the head. Like on Facebook, that's what we do, right? We're engaging the head. We, we want to tell them what we know. And we want their head to be convinced. And instead, we, we, we often neglect the heart and what God wants to do in the heart of a person. And the truth is, if we would just start engaging the heart of people, it takes the pressure off. Because then it doesn't matter if you're smarter than the person that you're talking to anymore. It doesn't matter if they're more educated. What matters at that point is that we have the chance to talk to them on a heart level. The last thing that our response should look like is urgency greater than apathy. Urgency greater than apathy. 1 Peter 3.15 says, and, and you guys probably know it, in your hearts, in your hearts, honor Christ. Paul is talking to believers, or excuse me, Peter's talking to believers here. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. For us as believers in this room, I I know a lot of us know what this looks like. We know about the unbelieving world out there. In fact, if we were honest, it kind of makes us angry. Makes us frustrated when we think about all that's changing, all that's happening in our culture and society. But here's the truth. For a lot of us, There's an apathy there. There's a a lazy heart there. A lazy heart to get angry about it, but to not actually do anything about it that's productive, that's loving, that's gentle and with respect, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. And here's the truth. Christian, if you're in this room, we don't have time to waste our lives on ourselves. We don't have time for that. We don't have time to waste every moment of thought and thinking and money and all that. We don't have time to waste every ounce of that on ourselves. And this isn't just for you, it's for me. I, I think about my own life. I think about like my summer and I think about how many things that I've tried to orchestrate and how much mental energy I've spent on trying to have an experience with my family, go on this vacation or do this or go there. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with Sabbath rest. There's nothing wrong with, with, with spending time with family. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But How much time do I actually think of the urgency of people that God is lovingly and patiently delaying judgment for? And I'm, st- I'm sitting on my hands. We don't have time to waste our lives on ourselves. God is calling us, believer, to go to the unbeliever in our workplace, to go to the unbeliever in our school, to go to the unbeliever in our neighborhood, and to lovingly engage them, to try to understand them, to try to engage just not just the head but the heart, And to do it with urgency, knowing that there is coming a day where it's going to be over. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. You may stand to your feet if you would. We're going to sing here in just a second. There's two people in the room today, and I want to talk to both of you. The first person in the room is the person that I mentioned earlier. You follow into the category of either saying that there is no God or living as if there is no God. And you're the unbeliever in this room today. And Billy Graham says, I hope he's wrong, but Billy Graham says that might be 85% of the room. Man, you come to church, you do the church thing, but if you were honest with yourself, man, you live as if there's no God. And God wants to get a hold of you today. He is lovingly and patiently delaying judgment so that you will come to him. Or maybe you're here today, and you're a believer in Christ. You're a faithful follower of Jesus. You gave your life at eight. You gave your life at 18. You gave your life at 60. And man, praise God. And you're here today, and you are just, you are singing God's praises. You believe in God. You believe in Jesus. You're following after him. And maybe you've, there's been a little laziness in your life, a little apathy in your life towards thinking about the lost world out there, the unbelieving world out there. And maybe your your apathy is actually just anger. You're just angry. You're angry where our world's headed. You're angry with all these things. And maybe today the Lord's saying to you, hey, let's get urgent about this. Let's quit griping to our spouse about this, or griping to the TV about this, or social media about this. Let's get urgent about this and let's start engaging the heart of people where they're at, the unbeliever where they're at. Let's start trying to understand them and give them loving truth and a loving defense for the hope that is within us. So wherever you find yourself today, I'm gonna ask that God would just move in your heart. Father, we pray, Lord, right now in this moment. God, that as we're about to sing, Lord, that the idea of the fact that you do things that only you can do, you tear down walls and Father because of that Lord we can come and we can come to you and say Lord I pray God I I know this friend at work that is so lost and they're so unbelieving and there's no hope for them God that we would stop believing that God that we believe Lord that you can you can come in you can change the heart Lord I pray for my friend Adam today Lord, Lord who does not know you, he refuses to know you And Father, I pray, God, that you would just continue to give me words to help me to understand where he's coming from, to engage his heart, Lord. And God, for all the other Adams of the world, for all the other unbelievers of the world, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just speak to their hearts, maybe even in this room. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name.